Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today I have CEO and founder of Vengresso, Mario Martinez Jr. Mario, would you mind giving a quick introduction to how you got to where you are and what your journey looked like? Oh my gosh, that's a long story. So I don't know if I can do a quick one there. (laughs) All right, so uh, very briefly, 22 years in business sales. My last stop was a VP of sales where I launched a digital sales training program. It was LinkedIn's most successful enterprise deployment that they had as of right now, as far as we know, to date as well. And they asked me to speak at their annual users conference in October 2015. And if you know people can't see me right now, but Marcus and I are looking at each other, but if brand equity like a straight line walking into there, it did a big giant vertical approach right afterwards. And three months later, I started my own company called M3 Junior Growth Strategies, which was later merged together with four other companies that formed Vingresso, which is the world's largest digital sales training company. So all happened, geez, in the last four, January uh, of 2020 will be four years that it all happened. So what sort of growth rates have you been achieving over that period then? So that's an interesting question. So we went from about nine folks to a little over 40 folks in the organization, both part-time, full-time, and uh, our partners as well. And um, one of the big things that we were challenged by was when I brought everybody together, I brought in a content marketing agency for a very specific purpose in terms of helping create more content for sales enablement and strategies around that for sellers. But it was a content marketing agency. So we had to get rid of, at that time, about 33% of our revenue. And we transitioned off all of that business, which was a huge chunk of business. And we got rid of all of that business, all that revenue to focus in on what we really wanted to go to market with was content for sales strategy enablement. It was a very interesting play, but nonetheless, we got rid of it, made it up, and are continuing to grow. This is a really interesting question. I certainly am of the mind that the more you niche and the tighter you define your market and who you're going after, the faster you can grow. Has that been your experience as well? Generally, I would agree with you. But I had other competing forces that have really worked within Vingresso. And that is, I was merging together five companies, right? So that's not normal (laughs) that you do. You bring everybody together all at one time. I would say, yes, I agree with you. But I would probably say the biggest thing that has, has been a force that we've had to contend with is the merger and acquisition of every single piece and part of our business. And that basically took us one year, one year to be able to bring that all together. And well, then to, um, quick. to very quick, that was why I'm actually have a big ball spot in back over here. You can't see it, but I got the ball spot in the back. <laughs> <laughs> the Chinese have a curse, which is may you live an interesting life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If I turn around, I, I'll show you the ball spot here, but I'm not, I'm not going to turn around here on, on live camera. It's all yeah, right. No, it's we, it's we only were, voice. We merged it together in our first year. And then what we also did was, is we took all of our core curriculums because we were all digital sales training companies. And we took that and merged that together. And then in year two, we built a platform that would allow us to be able to license the material and bring sellers in to understand how to leverage platforms like LinkedIn and how to develop the right skill to engage to create more conversations or start more conversations. So that was year two. And we are now in that year two right now, where we launched that here in 2019. And we're super excited. We invested about I'll tell you the number, 3,932 hours in investment of 
building the platform on all the IP consolidation. So it was a major undertaking and a big project. Wow. Okay. Let's move on a little bit to your area of expertise, which is obviously enabling sales through digital marketing, whether it be through content or LinkedIn outreach, email. I'm curious, there's this perennial battle that you hear about on LinkedIn between content gurus and uh, social gurus and people who believe in cold calling. And it's certainly my view that any tool or approach done well works and any approach done poorly doesn't. Can we put this to bed once and for all? First, let me go back to something you said about that we are enabling sellers through digital marketing. That actually is not the correct term, is through digital sales. So there is digital marketing, which is what marketers do. And that's usually what you'll find things related to community programs, uh, pay-per-click, SEO, those types of things. Digital sales is a very different aspect. That is using a digital medium to be able to engage with today's buyers. So, so that's, I want to make sure we clarify that. And what that looks like, it looks like using tools like social media, LinkedIn mm-hmm. as a big example, video, text, and even email is part of that digital sales process. Now, back to your question, let's put it to bed right now. There's no battle. It's called an omni-channel approach to prospecting, omni-channel prospecting, okay? So this is an interesting study that was done by um, InsideSales.com, now known as Zant, Zant.ai. Zant actually did a study of hundreds of thousands of points of reference, and it was a pretty, pretty exhaustive study that showcased when a seller uses one to two methods of outreach to a buyer, one to two, buyer level engagement is at 10%. So that would be, as an example, I used a phone and I used email, okay? Mm -hmm. Buyer level engagement is 10%. When a seller just added on just one more for a third outreach, a third methodology to, to reach out to that buyer. So at least one more three, maximum four, three to four ways to reach a buyer. So let's put that in perspective. Phone and email, that's one and two. LinkedIn and video, that would be three and four. As an example, you could throw direct mail inside or anything like that. When you went to a minimum of three, maximum four touch points with different mediums, your buyer engagement went to 40%, from 10% to 40%. So the answer to your question is cold call versus social. It's stupid. It's totally stupid. Let's not talk about cold call versus anything. First off, the cold call, I think, is dying. Yes, I'm going to say it it's only a 3% effectiveness rate, proven study after study after study, same with email. So we have to be thinking about how are we going to reach the other 97% of our buyers that aren't engaging through the telephone? And that is through digital mediums. Okay, I'm gonna challenge you back as well. Sales is a subset of marketing. Anything that touches the customer is part of marketing. And I think there is another important disconnect there. Because if you have sales versus marketing, sales versus the customer success team and the onboarding team and operations team, then there's a disconnect. And from the customer perspective, it's all one company. And I think this is another area that we really have to start getting a bit smarter as a profession about because it affects sales. And the other area that I'm really rabid about is that we spend so much of our time looking at new business that we forget to spend our time looking at how to grow and expand accounts. And 
I'd like to go into some depth about that in a moment. The most recent study, it was about 12, 18 months ago that I read it. For 20 years, I understood that it costs six to nine times more to sell to a new customer versus an existing. But the study that I read about 12 to 18 months ago suggested it's 12 to 25 times more to sell to a new customer. So it really doesn't make any sense to bring a customer through the front door only to let them out of a great big hole in the wall at the back. Exactly. Um, So I'm really curious about your thoughts in terms of using social selling and social marketing in order to engage with existing customers and broaden and deepen that relationship. So let me start out with, first, I agree with you. And let me break this down into this perspective. You talked about sales versus marketing. Let's define the difference between sales and marketing. And then I'll tell you what I think sales is. First off, marketing markets one to many. Sales markets one to one. They are both doing marketing. Both organizations have to understand what's happening on the other side of the fence. I like to think of salespeople. We're not sales. Our department name should be called Smarketing. That's what our department name should be called, Smarketing, right? And this is a very important aspect that we understand and sellers need to understand that if you are not building your skill sets around how to market to your buyers, you will fail. You will fail flat out. And we're talking about generally those that are responsible for hunting. Those that are responsible for farming and account management. You probably don't have to, to do as much of the marketing, if you would, with the exception when you're trying to go into expand or a giant national account or global account where you've got multiple divisions and nobody knows the left hand from the right hand, right? So this might be a little yeah. bit different. But Those guys absolutely have to have a prospecting habit and a absolutely. prospecting radar. If they don't, then they're nothing more than order takers and babysitters. Yeah, yeah, totally agree with you. So you mentioned also sales versus the CSM or sales and CSM. So first off, sales and customer success theoretically are one and the same. So as a matter of fact, I, as a tenured sales leader, I lead our customer success organization and I am on all of our calls and we are incentivized to focus on finding the opportunities and handing them back off over to the sales team. We're also incentivized that if we suck on our training delivery programs, then we have no upsell opportunity. And the upsell is completely relying upon the customer success team. So here's the thing. If I were to grow and scale and structure everything around who should be quota and compensated, sales should have a quota and have comp variable comp against a quota. Marketing should have a quota, the same as sales, and should be compensated the same way, down from your digital marketer to your social media manager to your CMO. 30% of your comp should be focused on sales results. And the same goes for the customer success organization. I would argue that's probably more of a 15, 20% comp should be focused on sales results. But nonetheless, every one of those departments should have a, a compensation model that surrounds that. Agreed. I think that continuum needs to be there. And what's really key I see this a lot in tech and hospitality. It's wherever there is a handover from one department to another. And that side of things really needs to be focused on good processes, good systems, good training, good coaching, good accountability, good reinforcement. And that's where things go horrifically wrong. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And so it's interesting because Kurt Shaver, he's our chief sales officer and one of my co-founders here at Vingresso. 
And in our old worlds, we would do both sales and delivery. So he was always used to controlling the sales and the delivery model, right? And when we separated into departments as we continued to grow, he had to oversee sales and I took all of the delivery side of the organization. And it was very difficult for him to, and the sales team to let go because it was this cold handoff, kick over the, you know, kick over the fence. But once they saw that the delivery team had built a process, a methodology, a system, and that we had mechanisms to be able to track over the course of three months, are you doing well? Are you doing well? No, uh, control, alt, reset. Let's fix this. Let's fix that. Let's get here. And we, we started proving out the results. Now sales is like, oh, oh, you mean all I have to do is sell and then somebody else does all the delivery and I can just keep making more money? Yes, that's exactly what your salespeople should be thinking about customer success. And if you are heading up customer success and your salespeople do not feel that they can let go and release, then your CSM organization or your customer success organization, quite frankly, sucks. And I think people need to understand that that's very important. Your salespeople have got to have that feeling that they can close, punt, walk away, and you have got it because you have a process, a system, a delivery mechanism, you're driving KPIs, you're driving results, and you're turning back over sales opportunities. And it's very important that you have that. Okay. This then raises the other question, because I think both you and I, you're probably more polite about it. I think there are an awful lot of fossils and dinosaurs in leadership positions who are stuck in their ways. They're unable to, I'm a 52-year-old crumbly old fossil covered in scar tissue, but I recognize that these technologies are amazing for helping us make our selling more efficient. But there are an awful lot of sales leaders out there. LinkedIn, what's this all about? Social, pick up the damn phone and all of this kind of stuff. And that trickles down into their management because what they're interested, they seem to track lag indicators that are largely meaningless because by the time those have been tracked and recorded, they've already hit the iceberg. And why I'm really frustrated by this is it just doesn't seem to change. And as a result, next year, Jonathan Farrington, he was at, speaking at our conference for Sandler last week because he heads up our research center. And his prediction is that in 2020, globally, 42% of salespeople will hit quota. I believe it. And one in five are currently at quota. One in five are close and will probably scrape it in and in the last couple of weeks of the last quarter as they give away the baby with the bathwater and they buy business through discounting in fireside sales. And then 60% don't. The research that we did in, that finished in July suggested that 69.7% of salespeople were tracking at or below 60% of quota seven months into the year. Now, that's a frightening, frightening statistic. And it invariably comes down to having a shoddy, weak, inconsistent pipeline because salespeople don't know how to prospect. All these wonderful tools are out there, LinkedIn, social, email, video, podcasting, content marketing. But why aren't they using it properly? It's funny because we have the the sales line and uh, the phones were ringing. And it kept ringing, ringing, ringing. And I kept seeing it, hearing it cycle. And I finally said, well, the, the salespeople aren't picking up. Well, I'm going to pick up the phone because I'm a salesperson at heart, right? So I picked up the phone. It was just today, just today. And the individual was calling up because we're doing a Black Friday sale for our Selling with LinkedIn for Individuals training program. It's a pre-Black Friday sale. And he said, you know, hey, I'm giving you a call because I actually 
want to know how is LinkedIn going to generate leads for me? And I said, well, first off, let's make something very clear. LinkedIn won't generate leads for you. You will generate leads with LinkedIn by doing the right things. LinkedIn's an advertising platform. Yeah. And it's a way to be able to bridge and connect, right? To your buyers. And that's the same exact thing with anything sales prospecting related. No tool is going to just generate leads for you, right? Now, marketing may produce some stuff for you as a result of marketing, pay-per-click, the downloads, those types of things. But generally, what I see is at least 50% of the responsibility for generating your sales is going to come from the sales organization. Now, sometimes it's higher and sometimes it's lower, but just to say it's 50%. So that as, means, as opposed to where's the other 50%? Marketing. Marketing. Yeah, oh, marketing is bringing fine. in the SQLs for yeah. you, right? They're, they're okay. doing all yeah. the marketing activities to bring those leads in. This is something that's very important as we think about this, as you talk about the fossils and the dinosaurs, right, of of leaders that are inside of sales. And and there are, we've got to be able to expand our skill sets to understand two things that are happening. And they're shifts, two major shifts. One, technology. And two, buyers. So those two shifts have fundamentally and dramatically changed how we prospect and how we engage with a buyer. It has, doesn't change how we sell, doesn't change how we build relationships, doesn't change how we build trust, it doesn't change the negotiation and whether or not there's budget authority, whether or not there's a timeline, any of those types of things, right? Doesn't change any of those types of things, but it does change how we engage and how we prospect and how we manage the team. So to your analogy of dinosaurs, last year, Marcus, I did 202 executive level meetings, 202. of those meetings were spent trying to convince sales leaders at the age of 45 and older, which is our age, right? 45 and older of this thing called the internet. People are listening and they're like, wait, no, come on. That can't be. 70% were spent trying to convince this thing called the internet that sales leaders, sales leaders understood and were mastering the art of are helping their sellers master the art of learning how to use other digital technologies to be able to engage with today's buyer. They're digitally connected. That is the buyer. The buyer is digitally connected, socially engaged, mobile attached, and video hungry. So ask yourself this question. If you know that they're digitally connected, socially engaged, mobile attached, and video hungry, then why are you sending emails the way you are sending them when you know that someone's reading them on a mobile device at least 40% and they have to scroll down two or three pages just to read your message? This is something that's very tactical, right? Very tactical. The other thing too is, is sales leaders, the dinosaur sales leaders are still managing to activity-based KPIs. Yeah. Activity-based KPIs. Now, there is a time and place to manage the activity-based KPIs and I'll come back to that. What sales leaders should be measuring and monitoring is productivity-based KPI. What do I mean by that? Activity-based KPIs is how many cold calls did you make today? Did you get on the phone? How many calls did you make? How many emails did you send out? That's activity. Productivity is how many conversations did you have today? Because I don't care. I don't care if you called, emailed, did social, did a video, did a direct mail campaign. I don't care how you did it. Just get the person on the phone. And that's our job now as professionals, B2B sellers, a highly prized, highly paid for compensated position in an organization. It's our job to figure out how to smart it to our buyers. When I go into work with clients, I have them focus on three leading indicators. One is the number of daily, unique, effective conversations with decision makers. So they pick up the phone, they 
contact them through LinkedIn, don't care. As long as they have a physical conversation with another human being and they get past the gatekeeper, they get through to the decision maker and they contract with them that they will explain in 30 seconds or less the purpose of the call. And then the buyer can have, make the decision either yes or no, I'm going to continue talking or I'm going to hang up. The second is the velocity that they're moving opportunities through the pipeline. Because a number of times I go into organizations and their pipeline either looks like Dolly Parton or Kim Kardashian, and it's bulging at the seams with maybes, think-it-overs, and non-opportunities. The third is the number of qualified opportunities moving to closable. And they have to have, within seven months, 300% more than they need in order to hit their quota, and within 12 months, 500% more. Now, when we do those three things and we implement those three leading indicator behaviors as habit, and it becomes part of the culture, and it's instituted in the recruitment process, in the hiring process, in the onboarding process, in the first 120-day onboarding plan, and it becomes part of their KPIs, what we find is their forecasting accuracy goes from, I mean, I've seen forecasting variance of 80% either way, yeah, uh, yeah. down to between half and 5% variance. Now, if you have an accurate forecast, and that is a function of a strong pipeline, then what you end up with is a predictable business. You can choose to invest months in advance knowing that you are going to get that money coming through. And it's going to be in your account, not that it's going to be there maybe this quarter, maybe next quarter. And it must be a nightmare running a PL when your forecast accuracy is 20, 30, 40, 60, 80% wrong. And the other thing on that is forecast. One of the things I have a real bee in my bonnet about is you may never forecast 50-50. A prospect goes in at 10% weighting. A qualified prospect goes in at 30 and a closable prospect goes in at 95. There is nothing in between. 50-50 is a weasel forecaster. You may as well be tossing a coin. Any thoughts on that? The age-old discussion on forecasting and what's the right methodology and formula. Boy, that's an area that I definitely have struggled with as a sales leader is the right metrics in terms of forecasting. And I, I have a school of thought, and that is I agree with you in principle. I do agree with you in principle. But the reason why we put in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90% is because we are trying to help the seller understand the different selling points at which you should be moving a deal along. And that's one of the reasons why you see a forecast go from 10 to 20 to 30, because it has different milestones. Conversation, you looked at whether or not there was budget, authority, and there was a timeline as an example, right? A need. Then the customer asked for a contract. Now you're negotiating a contract, right? So these are different steps in the sales process that determines its probability. But, you know, I do agree with you. It's like, why would you even send out a contract and that be at a, at a 70% close rate? If you don't know whether or not it's going to close, why waste the time in putting together a contract, right? So there's some elements there that I do understand, but unfortunately, not all sales people are created equal. Thus, the reason why we have 56% of sellers achieving quota. Now, I do believe that this is not just a seller problem. This is a management problem. And what management does today is management says, oh, we're not meeting quota. Let's add on 100 more salespeople. Let's oversubscribe. Let's roll out the plan. 
hopefully we throw something against the wall. And at the end of the year, all of this will stick and we'll be able to achieve our numbers. That's the wrong way to do it, right? We oftentimes we look at it and you're like, you don't even have an enablement plan. You don't even have a good training plan. You don't have a development plan that's actually moving the needle and moving things along. You don't have integration between sales and marketing. Marketing's doing their thing without any input into sales. They don't even understand what the day in the life of the customer looks like. Sales is driving activities that is producing results that marketing has no idea what it is that's going on. So fix those problems first and you'll fix your quota problem and, and you won't have to oversubscribe sales to quota. This again raises another really interesting question. If you take the Pareto principle where 80% of your profit comes from 20% of your salespeople and you start thinking about the breakdown of that, the 80-20 principle also applies at the top and the bottom end of that bell curve. Yeah. So the bottom 4% can barely breathe unaided. The next 16% can barely wipe their own bottom. Uh, (laughs) Then you've got the 60% middle layer of mush. Then you've got 16% who are excellent and 4% who can walk on water. And that 4% will typically account for 64% of your profit. Now, this is a desperately unpopular opinion with salespeople and with managers, which is you fire the bottom 80%, then you spend your time recruiting people like the top 20%, and you groom the 16% who are excellent into being A players. I see this in the channel all the time. That's a topic I'd like to touch on as well in a minute. What we're finding is that 2% of partners typically will account for 40 to 60% of channel revenues. Wow. 2%. Now, that's a frighteningly, it's a terrifying statistic. But what it also tells us is there is a massive opportunity here. Don't recruit a land army. Don't recruit another 100 salespeople. And the rule in recruitment is really simple. Better no breath than bad breath, yeah? (laughs) You you should hire slow and fire fast. You do not compromise on recruitment. And this is where I see managers going wrong because what they're looking for is a warm body in a seat. I'll give you a cracking example of this. I was working with a client and they let go a guy who was managing a territory. The quarter after he left, with no one in post, Sales grew 30%. Hmm. Why? Because he was blocking sales because people didn't want to deal with him. Now, this is the one-on-one piece. If you have a salesperson who comes in and they do the show-up-and-throw-up routine where they show photos to the ugly kid to a stranger and they talk about themselves, the company, the product, who their investors are. I mean, who the hell gives a damn who your investors are? I mean, seriously, I've got a problem. I want it fixed. I don't want to spend 25 minutes on death by PowerPoint where you're going to drone on about your tedious product in your company. I want to know, can you help me? And if you can help me, are you the right person to? And this is where I think we've gone really badly wrong because I think what most managers do is they do what was done to them and they recruit in their own image only weaker. And they end up being run ragged because they're spending all of their time dealing with the weak instead of developing the strong. If you look at any sales team and you were to coach and develop your top performers and get 30% more out of them, it's better than probably 80% more out of your bottom performance. So you should be playing favorites as well. And this is where I think marketing spend, training spend, management time, coaching really needs to be refocused. 
attracting the best people, because managers only have four functions. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, and protect your salespeople from your idiot senior management. Yeah? <laughs> it reminds me of all the things you're saying, Marcus, reminds me of that picture that was going around on social media that said, the CFO says to the CEO, what if we pay all this money and train all of our people to be yeah. better and they leave? And the CEO says back to the CFO, what if we don't train them and they stay? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, absolutely. This is completely tangential, but you reminded me of a meme that went around a couple of years ago, which was a picture of Barack Obama speaking to David Cameron. Obama is saying, David, I can't hear you. There's some crackling on the line. I don't know if you remember that story, uh, but no. anyway, the UK will understand it. Uh, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> this is the fundamental issue that we have and that you've described is the inability to be able to allocate the training. But think about this. And let's just take a step back here. Of all the college programs that are out there, there are only approximately 50 colleges that have a sales certification and even fewer that actually have a sales undergraduate or master's program. Yeah. 50, 50, that's it. And here's another statistic for you. 50% of all college graduates go yeah, into is. sales. Absolutely. So here we have a situation where we bring sellers into the organization and we have leader at the top who's training folks, training folks, training folks. and we are still having a problem that 54% of our sellers are making quota year after year after year. So what do we do to fix that? Well, one, it starts with the education system. If 50% of our jobs are coming are going into roles that we don't even have a curriculum for, oh my God, let's fix that. All right. Now, the next thing is, is fixing world hunger, which that would be world hunger for solving world hunger. Then we as a sales organization need to fight furiously, furiously for sales training development to help our leaders become better leaders and for them to be able to coach up or out the bottom performers, right? Up yeah. or out those bottom performers and take those top performers and the middle swath. That middle swath can really move the needle in a good way and bring them up to top performers. We don't allocate a lot of training development dollars. In fact, first places that we cut inside of an organization. Training, training marketing, training. and recruitment. Exactly. The three most fundamentally important parts of the business. Exactly. So, so if you're thinking about this from a pure operations perspective and you're a leader listening into this call or to this podcast, you got to stop and say, why would I cut my own throat? You cannot cut your own throat. And if you're concerned about investing in people that are not the right people and that it's going to be a lost training, then you should have gotten rid of them to begin with. Absolutely. You shouldn't have hired them in the first place. That's on your watch. Although I will say that there are times when, uh, you think you've got a great hire and I've been there. I thought you had a great hire and turns out 30 days later, you're like, this is a bad fit. <laughs> okay, so again, this is a really worthwhile conversation to have. Most people recruit for the wrong things. They recruit for lag indicators, which are skills, experience, and historical results. Sure. What they say is Mario used to be good, perhaps. Doesn't tell me whether you are lucky, carried, burnt out, or just in the right place at the right time. Leading indicators are attitudes, beliefs, and values, self-concept, money concept, uh, belief about selling, parity with the customer, the right to be there, what your rights are as a seller, your values. One of my favorite questions in an interview, 
very early on is, Mario, when is it okay to lie to a customer? Never. And that's exactly the response. And if it takes any longer than you answered, then that's the end of the interview. And the problem is that a lot of salespeople have been brought through that, you know, it's okay to tell a little white lie. It's okay to be economical or stretch the truth. And I disagree with that because the minute you're caught in a lie, they may forgive you, but they can never forget and they can never trust anything that comes out of your mouth ever again. Sales is a high integrity business. I firmly believe sales is a force for good. And it's a noble profession done well. But by and large, it's not. So attitudes, beliefs, and values, cognitive ability, the ability to learn, adapt, the ability to take on board what's happening to you, then try new things, to take risks, resilience. And the most important thing of all is habit. Yeah? If you're a nose-picking, bottom-scratching, grumbling, moaner, complainer, and blamer, odds are, if you bring that with you, that's what you're going to be when you're on my payroll. What I want to know is, do you have a good prospecting habit? Do you have a good work ethic? Are you organized? Are you a planner? Do you question well? Do you listen well? And these are the things that differentiate. I want lazy salespeople. I want salespeople who understand that the war is won in the planning, not by turning up and winging it because you're too darn lazy to invest a couple of hours in planning and rehearsal. Now, when I work with my clients, it becomes part of the culture that they have to do a written pre-call plan. And for every hour they expect to be in front of the customer, three hours of rehearsal. When you think about the cost of lead acquisition and the number of meetings that they have to burn through, you know that the statistic that's banding around at the moment is 83% of first meetings do not result in a second contact. Mm. Which means that four out of five, I mean, whatever it costs you to get that meeting, forget the lead, uh, the cost of the lead, but to get that meeting, the expense, all the faffing around that goes beforehand, then the lying that goes on in the forecasting meeting from that work of fiction that most salespeople have as a forecast, and the time that they take to bury people in demos using sales support, technical sales, AEs, all that kind of stuff. And then you only convert one in five of those into a second meeting. And then you end up getting constipated in the pipeline because you can't move things through. Is it any wonder that so many companies make barely any profit? Yeah, yeah. Well, (laughs) I love all your analogies, Marcus. (laughs) Golly, Parton constipation. Is a Kim Kardashian, no less. Kim Kardashian, that's right, exactly. I'm, I'm very woke. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's interesting that you bring this up. And I, I, a lot of it has to do with, really, honestly, it's the skill set development. You know, I'm thinking about sellers. I recently heard of a situation with a seller that they had a buyer on the phone. And the buyer said, okay, this sounds great. You know, what do I do next? And the seller said, well, you can go ahead and, and go to the website and you can you know, place the order there and that should work, be just fine. They, and the buyer said, okay. And the seller said, okay, well, thanks so much. And when I was talking to one of our customers about that, I was like, okay, basic 101 was missing. And that was, okay, buyer, if you're ready, want to know what to do next? Okay, why don't you go to open your laptops, go to this, do the page that you need to go to, Now, what I want you to do is I want you to click that sign up button. 
Okay, now that you're there, filling your information, I'll wait, go ahead and fill it in. And now what you're gonna do is put in your credit card. Okay, and boom, you're good to go. I'll check the order. Let me check a look at it. Got it. All is confirmed. I'll get you going in the right direction. But when asked about that, when asked about that, the seller felt like they didn't want to be too pushy, too pushy. And their job is to go to the bank. Exactly. I'm going to tie this back to the story, uh, I'm to, to the saying that I have. And this was, as you may or may not know, I was part of the film that Salesforce produced called The Story of Sales. And they picked 20 sales influencers and I was, was fortunate to be, be one of them. And from that show, I, ha- I developed a saying that was debuted there and something I use now. What is sales? Sales is the art of helping. Mm-hmm. That's it. So if you think about that context, you would never think that you're too pushy. You're helping the buyer solve the problem that they're trying to solve, right? And that's what we need to be thinking about ourselves as sellers is we're helpers. So we need to facilitate someone going through the process at all times. Can you see why I said that values, beliefs, and attitudes are so key? Money concept. Having a problem talking about money as a salesperson is a serious handicap. Not seeing yourself as your prospect's equal. Seeing sales conceptually as something grubby, a dark art, something that you fall into because you're too stupid to become an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor. The grim reality is that nothing happens without sales. We make the world's economy move. And it's a noble profession. One of the things I love about Sandler is the rule, you'll only perform to the level your self-concept will allow. And this is really key. If you see yourself conceptually as some grubby, money-grabbing parasite, and or you see sales as that, you will try not to be one of those. And so what you'll do is the opposite, and you'll behave just the way that sales put, well, that order taker behaved. And it's shameful. Okay, I'm conscious of time. And I know we've digressed from where we wanted to be, but I'd love you to talk about LinkedIn in particular. LinkedIn is generating for me with LinkedIn content and outreach engagement and so on. I'm generating at least 70 to 80% of my revenue through LinkedIn and uh, the rest comes through referrals. So last year we did 650, just me. And it's a fantastic platform, but it's done so badly. Those awful outreach emails. And I know that's a particular bugbear of yours because I've seen your video. What are the cardinal sins when it comes to really shoddy LinkedIn behavior? Yeah. So you saw the one that uh, is kind of going viral right now uh, out on LinkedIn where I've gone crazy. I just went crazy. And uh, (laughs) I was throwing around the garbage cans that I couldn't take one more shoddy, bad LinkedIn message one more time. So, and we did something about it and we could talk about that as well. But you know, Biggest problem with LinkedIn is sellers have taken the medium from bad emails or crappy emails, and all they've done is moved it over to LinkedIn to go from crap that they were sending on email to crap now they're sending on LinkedIn. And for some reason, they think that it's a different form that will produce different results. But the reality is crap in is still crap out. And so that's where sellers have made the very big mistake in terms of learning how to use this platform. The other thing that sellers have made is there's a bazillion LinkedIn experts. When I started out in this particular arena, there was about 400 people that LinkedIn themselves identified as, uh, quote, LinkedIn experts. There were 400 people globally, worldwide. And they selected the top 10 experts around the globe to be part of their partner channel program. And I was one of them. 
And so what they had done was, is they looked at all these foreigner people and then they came in and they narrowed it down to 25 people that were actually legit. Now there's roughly over 3000 people that I think the last summer I looked at that call themselves LinkedIn experts. And here's the reality. If you're going to some LinkedIn expert and you're getting a free $500 training or 90 minute sessions, you're going to get what you pay for, right? And your sales team, you call somebody up. We had a, someone that came in on the phone and uh, I actually happened to pick up the, the sales hotline and it was a buyer who said, you know, Hey, we want to do a full day training program so we can get caught up on LinkedIn. And I said, so what percentage of, of learning do you think your people will retain on a full day sales training program? <laughs> the number is, is 30%. So what, what happens afterwards? Well, we were just hoping that, you know, kind of just get the down and dirty to get us some advanced skills to be able to help train. No. Do you want to change behavior and improve results? Yes or yes. <laughs> So you need to develop, you need to go with a methodology and a process and a program that allows your sellers to be able to enhance and develop their skill. And that's the problem. We think about this. We basically take salespeople and we get the new tool and we say, go use it. But we don't give them training. We don't give them skill set development. We don't teach them the art of converting a connection into a conversation, going from online to offline. We don't teach them the art of how to personalize a connection request. We don't teach them the art of how to feed your network valuable content, what to feed, when to feed, what to say, what, what, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. We don't teach our sellers how to transform their brand online because here's the number. 62% of buyers reported last year that when a seller reaches out to them, that they look back at their LinkedIn profile to determine whether or not they're going to have a conversation. Why? Because they click on your profile and they see quota crushing sales rep, all-time best contract negotiator, president's club, 10 times president's club earner, all stuff that your buyer doesn't care. Why do we know this? Because companies have websites that are all focused on paying hundreds of millions of dollars in this industry, in the industry, to be able to build websites that attract your target buyer with the right messaging. So if we are salespeople or marketers and we are doing marketing one-to-one and we're making outreach to our buyers and they're coming back to our LinkedIn page, should your LinkedIn page be a resume or should it be a resource? Absolutely. Every touch that you have with a suspect, a prospect, a customer, or a client needs to add value. And this is where people forget. Why would you do that? If you're constantly going out there and you're just peddling your stuff, and yeah, this is my analogy of photos of your ugly children, and you're talking about yourself, no one cares. If it looks like a CV or resume, that's basically telling them that you have no interest in adding value. Your profile should absolutely talk about your customer. Our job as salespeople is to be the guide and for them to be the hero. And if we don't get to grips with that as sellers, then it's social will never work. LinkedIn will never work. Email will never work. Prospecting by phone will never work. Yeah, exactly. This is why we developed what's called the PVC sales methodology, right? The PVC. Tell me about that. As in the piping, right? PVC. Yeah. Most sellers don't think about this and it's not just for LinkedIn. This is for email. This is for a phone conversation. This is for any type of touch point that you have, even including in-person shaking the hands uh, type of conversation. You've got to leverage the PVC sales methodology. What is the P? Personalize. Personalize your message. Understand who your buyer is. Please do not send me a stupid message that says you're going to help drive LinkedIn leads 
to Mario Martinez, the CEO of the world's largest digital sales training company, teaching sellers how to use LinkedIn to be able to create leads. That's stupid, right? So you need to understand who I am as a buyer before you make outreach. That's the P in personalization. Personalization also understands if there's nothing that I can personalize it to the individual buyer themselves, that I understand how to personalize to the buyer persona. Meaning I understand the business problems that are affecting you that my solution can solve. So that's that, that's the P and you need to understand that in creating outreach, whether it's a connection request, an email that you're sending, an email that you're sending or any type of outreach that you're doing. Now the V, the V is value. And we talk about bring value, give value, bring value, give value. And it's so cliche now in the sales industry. What the heck does that mean? There is not an email that I have an exchange with in the sales prospecting phase. Every single time I engage with a buyer and there's a message or a question that I'm answering and that I'm engaged with them, I am bringing a piece of content to the table. I am bringing an article to the table. I'm bringing a white paper, an ebook, a podcast, a blog, a video, whatever it might be. So that means as a marketer, I need to know what content is being pushed out. I recently had a conversation with a salesperson. They're like, we were preparing their response to a message as part of our training program. And I said, um, hey, did you see your latest blog? And they said, oh, no, no, no. That, that, that just got published two days ago. And I'm like, and? And? It got published two days ago, but isn't this blog right here? Let's look, look at it. Isn't this what's going to solve the problem for you? Well, yeah, but I just haven't had time. Why? You need to know and consume that content because marketing is spending time supposedly building the right content for your buyer persona at the awareness, consideration, and purchasing phase. And you need to know how to use that content. So when you bring that content to the table, buyers have identified that they are going to consume five to eight pieces of content throughout the sales buying journey. So give them the content that you want them to read. Absolutely. That's the value. The C is the call to action. It's most commonly the item that is missed in a voice message, in an email, in a LinkedIn message, in a connection request, whatever it might, even in a video that you produce, it's the CTA. Now, most sellers, if they have a CTA, they want to drive directly to a meeting. I want to meet with you for 15 minutes. Don't get me started on that 15-minute meeting thing. That is the stupidest thing in the world. Absolutely. Table that for another discussion, another podcast. Yeah. Your CTA can sometimes be, we should have a meeting because. It sometimes could be that. But in many cases where you are warming up a prospect to a conversation, your CTA is a question to engage your audience. Because if you can identify through a question that created an audience, especially in written form or in verbal form, if you can engage them and understand the pain, now you can start talking solutions to the problem that they have. And so it's very important that people understand that the CTA might not be a get a meeting, but the CTA might be one step before the meeting. And that is a question to, to create that engagement. And that's what you're looking to drive. Absolutely. It's about advancing the same. I always talk to people about advancement versus a continuation. Advancing is moving from A to B to D to E to F. A continuation is where you spin your wheels at A because you're not adding value. And bear in mind, these people are busy. You have an obligation as a seller not to waste their time. Your contact, it should leave them saying, thank God they called. 
I'm yeah. so pleased. That was a good use of my time. But most of them feel grubby. Uh, CSO Insights released some research last year saying that something like eight, 92% of CEOs hate receiving bad cold calls, but 83% of them like receiving good ones. Meh, what a surprise. <laughs> Duh. <Okay. laughs> yeah. Mario, this has been really insightful, and I'd love to do this again. And I think I'd like to have some offline conversations with you as well, because I think there's some really interesting stuff that we might be able to do together in terms of aligning our content. Because there seems to be a, a meeting of minds, small minds, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Meeting, um, <laughs> two questions: Who's influencing you at the moment in terms of books you're reading, blogs, posts, podcasts, videos? Wow, she's. I can't say it's one, Marcus, and this is an it's an odd answer. What I can say is I'm an avid consumer of short form content, so I'll plow through a blog in less than a couple minutes. I read, I click on stuff all day long, every day. So, Are you um, using Blinkist and things like tools like that? No, actually, believe it or not, I've got my tools and, and down to feed me the information. There's a couple of tools that are out there called Feedly. I think it's a great tool to be able to find content and find sources. It's um, F-E-E-D-L-Y, Feedly.com. That's one. And then also the folks that I'm connected with on LinkedIn, you know, when, I, when I scroll through my newsfeed, it's, it's pertinent content. So I consume video, I consume blogs, and there's a lot of things that influence me. And it's based upon where I'm at in the stream of times with our company and our growth development phase, where I'm looking at things that are influencing me. The big thing that has got me going right now, as you know, is basically stopping the crazy. It's crazy that sales preps are underperforming. And it's crazy that sales reps are using tools like video and LinkedIn and not finding performance or not being able to get the, the results that they want. We did launch our, our Black Friday program I'll tell you why we did that as a Black Friday program. If you go to startmoresalesconversations.com, startmoresalesconversations, and use the code CAPS Black Friday, all one word, we're doing a 50% off off that on-demand sales training program. But the reason why I tell you that, one, to put the plug in, but, but two, because as I thought about marketing strategies, I went out and started doing research on Black Friday marketing strategies. And so like, that's what I talk about in terms of like, I'm very much like, what is going to advance the, the, the business and the growth? And I want to understand all the different dynamics. And I immersed myself into, what about this strategy, that strategy, this strategy? And we're going to see some of those things implemented. And you saw the first one video that uh, is uh, a quite funny, uh, crazy video. And there's another picture going up today with uh, the police chasing after me. So, uh, <laughs> because I, I went crazy. <laughs> Next time we speak, I'd like to focus exclusively on using these tools to advance channel partner sales. That's a particular interest to me. Final question then. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and you could advise the idiot Mario, 23 years old, what kind of things would you advise him to do or not do to avoid a lifetime of heartache and career sabotage? So this is really funny. This is actually happening in two days from now. In two days from now, I'm doing lunch with a sales manager is my second sales manager I had at the age of 21 years old. <laughs> and I have not talked to her since I walked out of her office and quit over 22 years ago. <laughs> and we are doing lunch this Friday. And I, is it the moment of humility? Exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> so I sent her a note. She said, Hey, let's do lunch. And it's been 22 years. Like we're growing people, right? So I sent her a note and I said, Hey, dress up you and I are going to be doing a video and that video is going to be talking about 
why you should have fired me when I was a 20-year-old know-it-all <laughs> snot-nosed kid. Uh, and it is is really all about everything that she was expecting of me to do is to, and I'll give you a great example. I worked in East Coast territory. And so I would come in anywhere between like 8.30 and 9 o'clock in the morning, Pacific Coast time, which was already <laughs> noontime, East Coast time. So I'm not a morning person. I'm a nighttime person did not want to change. And I didn't think I needed to change in order to be able to have success because in the previous years under my old manager, I was able to have awesome success, right? Um, without having to do that. But I didn't have an exclusive East Coast-based territory. And so that was one of the big ones where I was like, she and I were button heads over it. And I was like, well, you know, screw you. Like, if you're not gonna, if you think that I can't do it, then I shouldn't be here. So I'm out. And that was a horrible decision that I made and I should have listened because it was the right thing to do. And I was too immature to listen to it. So my point is, is, is there's maturity in senior leaders. While well, we, we talked about them being dinosaurs, there's also maturity there. And I should have Not listened. All of them. 6% uh, huh? Yeah. 6% exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there's maturity and I should have listened. And there's been a couple of occasions where I should have listened as well. So you might want to start with an apology. So no doubt. So that's, that's the video we're going to be putting on. It's going to be a very humbling video that we do talking about what, what, you know, best advice and what should have happened. But I've been connected with her on LinkedIn for quite some time and it's going to be a, a great meeting. So I'm excited to do the launch. Excellent. Mario, thank you so much. How can people get hold of you? I'm on LinkedIn, Mario Martinez Jr. Feel free to uh, reach out and connect with me. Make sure you say you heard me on Marcus's podcast here uh, Absolutely. on Twitter, M underscore three JR. That is uh, my uh, Twitter handle. And then uh, feel free to visit startmoresalesconversations.com. That is, uh, and use the Black Friday code up through November 30th. There's only 500 seats that are available for this particular program that we're doing here, Marcus. Brilliant. Mario Martinez Jr., thank you so much. Real, an absolute pleasure. Can't wait to do this again. Thank you, my friend, for having me.